Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. The podcast you are about to hear was recorded in 2010. My name is Samuel Jackson. I'm a librarian here at the Seattle Public Library. And as I said, I'd like to welcome all of you for joining us. Today we have uh, Margaret Wilson, who will be showing images and reading from her book, Dance Lest We All Fall Down. I'd like to thank the Elliott Bay Bookstore for presenting, um, for bringing the books to sell this evening. About a year or more ago, um, I talked with uh, Margaret Wilson about her book, uh, Dance Lest We All Fall Down, and we tried to figure out how to have her at the Seattle Public Library, and it didn't happen. But all good things do happen, and so today I'm very happy to introduce Margaret Wilson, who will talk about her book, Dance Lest We All Fall Down. I'm an anthropologist. I've written a lot of academic books, and I wanted to, I set out first, I was going to write a book about development. And I was sitting in my kitchen, starting to write this book, and I was even, I was boring myself with what I was writing. And so I thought, I forget it. I'm not getting any younger. I would love to write a book, just, just the kind of book I would just have fun writing about the reality of things, at a, but tell it through story. And so that's what I set out to do. And I started writing these different stories, and in the end, I wanted the book to read like a novel. But all of the, um, everything within the book is based completely on field notes. So it's, it's all the details, all the conversations. I changed a bit of pieces here and there, the names of people, sometimes the sequence, to make the story flow. But a lot of the conversations are verbatim. Then, but I wanted to have character development, plot development, to have it just read as though you were reading a novel, and to have these very important issues come through the story. I wrote it in a first person as though, so the reader learns as I learn, as I'm there. The book's uh, divided into three parts. And the first part is when I first go to Brazil, which was some years ago, which was 1991. Um, I was dancing, if anybody remembers this, I was, in, I was living in Amsterdam, dancing a lot, this dance at the time called Lambada, anybody knows it's Lambada, um, with a lot of Brazilians. And there was um, some people I met, and they lived in these, uh, they were your people who, they were illegal immigrants living in what they called squats. You can just, in Amsterdam, you could just occupy uh, you could just live in an unoccupied building, and that's what they were doing. And I met some people, I grow very fond of them, and the Brazilians from northeastern Brazil who were there invited me to visit them in Brazil. And I had a postdoc in Australia, and so I thought, all right, I'll do that. I didn't really know what I was going to be getting into. 
they lived in one of the vast shanty towns of Brazil. And when I arrived, these people had a house because of remittances from their family, from the kids who were living in, in Amsterdam. Many other people in the area did not. Their house was put together with um, these, these bricks that have so much sand in the concrete that they crumble under your hands. They're very unstable. In, in the rains, they tumble down. It's very, Salvador is kind of like Seattle in that it's very hilly, only even more so. It's really steep hills, and they'll tumble down. They'll crush people in them. But they did have a house. I realized once I arrived, there were five, um, five sisters with us, with me, and we would be sharing a room about 10 by 6, 10 by 8. There were five of us in there in bunk beds with a tiny little window. It was about 95 degrees with about 90% humidity. I thought, oh no. It was mold, fall, it's, sort of, it's, it's so humid, there was mold down the walls. They asked me if I'd like to take a shower. I went in to take a shower. It was a single spigot coming from the ceiling with concrete walls. My sight isn't too good. I'm looking at the wall. <laughs> I see this dark shape, and then I realize it's a cockroach this big. Once I saw one cockroach, they were everywhere. As much as the family tried to clean everything, you would open a cupboard, a locked cupboard, you'd pull out a coffee cup and there'd be a little cockroach nesting inside. These people, they worry about, children worry about getting eaten by rats. At the bottom of the hill, we were sort of up a hill, you go down and there's an open sewer. There was a sewer running in front of their house that goes to a bigger sewer at the bottom. And at the bottom of the hill is where these children live in... Um, uh, they live in, it's just rubble with tarp on the top, and they don't seem to have parents. The mother of the family where I, who taught me how to live in Brazil, they taught me a lot. Uh, she'd had 15 children, nine had lived, which was pretty good, actually, a lot because of what she, she offered. And um, she would sell these little buns out of the windows, and they have guava paste in them. And they're called sonhas, which means dream in Portuguese. And so every morning I would help her sell these buns. And I always thought as I leaned against the crumbling walls that here we were selling dreams out of this window to the people on the streets. Um, they took me to something they thought was beautiful in their city after a while and they took me to see a shopping mall. It was very interesting that in the shopping mall, everybody there, it, it's like you went into a different society. The society outside was all black. Everybody was African descent. This is the largest African, uh, it's considered the largest African city outside of Africa. Everybody in the streets was black, and then you go into the shopping mall, and it's as though you've gone into a different, a different world. Everybody inside is white. And my question was, they wanted me to buy things. They wanted me to be excited about this. And my question for my part was, where was their anger at this inequality? And where was their anger at me? 
From this first experience, um, they became my teachers. I made a lot of friends in the shanty towns, and I ended up living there for quite some time. And among other things, as, as you saw, I started doing this. Um, it's, an, it's quite, you can see it now in Seattle. You, you can see it here. Capoeira de Angola. It's an African-Brazilian martial art. You do a lot of it on your hands, standing on your hands, and you kick with your feet. Um, it's, it's a dance. It's a, a complex chess game between bodies. It's a remarkable thing to do. Uh, it came to Brazil in the 1600s with the African slaves, and it's become this remarkable dance, and yet it's a lethal martial art. And through that, I met Hita, who's African-Brazilian. She's one of the people, one in a million, who was actually able to go to university, and she got a degree. And then she was one of the only people I met who, when having had that chance, she didn't leave the community of her birth, this horrible shantytown where she grew up. She stayed there and tried to work for change in her own community. So we became friends, and at one point she started talking about how she wanted to do something larger, but she needed a partner. She didn't feel she could do it alone because she wouldn't get the respect she needed from the middle class. Nobody would support a shantytown person doing this alone. So I thought about it. And then I came back to Seattle. Now, as many of you who've lived overseas know, coming back is often much, much harder than going. If you live in another culture and you think you're going to come home again afterwards, you think that it's going to be comfortable when you come back and you can just relax. That is not true. Because the place, I'm from the Northwest, the place you're from will never be the same again because you see it through different eyes, because your whole perception of interaction has completely changed. For example, when I came back to Seattle, I remember I was standing in line to, to go to a dance club. And there was a, I, I, be, I very much related to all the homeless people because I saw them being marginalized in the same way as the people I'd grown to love in Brazil were marginalized. And there was a guy standing in line, well, there, was, there were several standing in line, and there was a guy who was going along asking people, he'd say, well, it's a good night, he said to the first people in line, and they kind of turned away. And he went to the next person, he says, a really good night, he said to the second people in line, and the guy sort of moved the woman to the inside, and then he came to me, the third person in, third in line, and he said, it's an effing good night. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it really is. It's beautiful stars. And he looked at me and he said, thank you. And then he walked away. I actually got really depressed after being here for a while. But then I realized some of these depressions were of insecurity and things like that. And I realized, you know, if you're going to think about depression, why not make it matter? Do something big. And so out of this, I called Hita, and I said, okay, I'll do this. I will start this project with you. 
And that starts the second part of the book. And what I write about is us starting it, and it wasn't easy. You read a lot of books about everybody, about people who start these nonprofits, and it's really a wonderful thing, and isn't it wonderful? The people are very noble, and it's, um, it's really, it's very hard. There are a lot of struggles that one goes through doing this. There's a lot of disappointments. In a lot of ways, one is very alone, that you build a wonderful community, but there's a reality of who you have to become to do this. So it's a story about, the second part is about us trying to start this, to trying to do it. We went there, I went there, and we asked people there what they thought would be best. And they're the ones who said, an education program for girls that would allow them to go to impoverished girls, that would allow them to go to university and become activists for change themselves. So that's what we did. We did it because that's what they asked. And Hita was the director in Brazil, and I would work internationally. The third part of the book is when we, we actually become a medium-sized NGO. And that has its own problems. Uh, you have things like attempted board takeovers. You have... Uh, there's a lot of structural issues. There's issues, we, we bought a building, which was terrifying. All these things happen. It's still not just an easy, light thing to do. So what this book is about is about the reality of doing a project of this kind. The disappointment, the joys, the companionship, the, the depression, the despair, and a determination of survival. That's what it's about. So, so, what you, so I'm going to read a bit so you can actually um, see what my writing style is like. <laughs> and see when I say it's like a story, what it actually is. So I don't often read in public because I've got crappy eyesight, but I think it's, you know, I want you to be able to tell what it's like. This is um, a bit in the book about my first carnival. Uh, Salvador has one of the largest great carnivals in the world. It's a huge street carnival. Um, so this is my experience there. In Brazil, during carnival, almost everyone danced, from children to the elderly. If one could walk, one could dance. Indeed, one could not escape Carnival. The dancers possessed the streets. During my first Salvador Carnival, I danced for five days, sleeping hardly at all, and as the nights passed, I danced for them to come again. Only in the dust of the last dawn, as we stood crushed on the bus homeward, sharing the sweat and the surface of our skin, only then did I understand what exhaustion was. People said carnival was a time when society turned upside down, when the boundaries of ethnicity, wealth, and class crumbled under the resonance of a multitude of drums. But the dance of carnival held more meaning than that. It also embodied poverty, death, and annihilation. One night during this first carnival, 
I dance joyously with Anna Andreia, those the two of the daughters, the people I stayed with. In Salvador's street carnival, crowds of literally millions pushed you along the street, and you could not stop. If you didn't dance in the same rhythm as everyone else, you got smashed. Lines, ten people wide, past each other, all dancing, all wearing very little clothing. This was a time to flirt. Men and women watched each other as they passed in the varied currents. I would see a beautiful man or feel his eyes on me, and we would approach, dancing slowly toward each other, staring into each other's eyes, promising everything, but knowing we could not stop there in the street and could fulfill nothing. Then, as we passed, we would touch arms and hands, feeling the slick of each other's sweat, the crackling intensity of the hour. I would then turn my eyes again to the flowing current to watch the incredible people coming toward me, to feel the eyes of another and, for another five minutes, fall into whatever they held. The music, the heat, the touching, the rhythm, all came together to create an intoxicant beyond any of the beer sold in the streets. To scream with pleasure and to dance on. Sometime around midnight of the first carnival, a police van tore into the crowd and 20 or more police descended upon a man dancing nearby. One pulled him off his feet and the others beat him. I heard his bones crack under the force of their batons. His girlfriend, or perhaps his sister, screamed and tried to run to his side. Her friends held her back, pinning her arms and holding her head so she wouldn't bite them in her fight to escape. The man fell, but the police kicked him long after he had ceased to move. After they tossed his limp body into the back of the van, the police passed around a cloth with which they wiped his blood from their hands. I stood nearby, my body cold, the memory of his snapping bones a louder percussion than the blasting carnival tune. Andrea touched my arm. Dance, she said. I looked at her and turned my head away. Dance, she said. She began to push my hips with her hands. Didn't you see that? What are you doing? How can you possibly just forget it like that? I don't forget anything, she said. Dance. I looked into her young eyes that had seen 13 years of violence, starvation, and want. The power of a poem by Yeats from my childhood came to me at that moment. Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild. It is the song of the fairy folk calling us to dance, to go where time passes unnoticed and forgetfulness is bliss. 
I don't know if it is possible to transcend violence. But with Andrea's guidance, I began to understand that on that night, we danced for the pain of the tortured man. For those before him, and for those who assuredly will follow. Our dance was the equilibrium that kept the world from tipping over. I placed my hands on her shoulders and we began to move. After a time, she smiled at me. After a longer time, I smiled back. So that's, um, I'll just stop there if people have questions and we can, you can direct me to talk about whatever you like. Thank you. Baya Street has uh, this, this, you probably, when did you read the book? Um, a couple months ago. Because there is an afterword that brings it right up to now. Okay. Um, in this UW. Um, so, so the thing right now we we have it's it's got we have a five-story building. It's got it's got 65 children, but instead of growing larger, like more schools, more children, because it has to come from the community, it goes outward. It's filtered out through the whole community, and so it has high school programs for kids to girls to learn science and math. It has uh, programs for the parents because you can't. One thing about poverty is you can't cut it out. It doesn't work. It's not like you think you're going to have a cancer and you're going to cut it out and just fix one little portion. It's all interrelated. And so the caregivers, some of them, do, some of the girls don't have mothers or don't have parents. Some just have mothers. Some have grandmothers. Some have sisters. Some have somebody's looking after them because they have to be able to study to the attempts that Bay Street requires. There are programs for them too. Even one teaching, because there are things that don't require literacy too, um, like a hairdressing school as well, but also teaching them literacy and numeracy. So it's, it's expanded throughout the community. Uh, it's filtering outward. I go to Brazil regularly, yes, still. Um, I'm working with the Office of Minority Affairs at University of Washington, and I'm taking a student, group of students down there this spring for the third time. So, you know, where's, where's the wood? Knock on wood. Things are, things are going well with Bay Street now. No, no, we don't, we don't, we're very careful about one thing. Bay Street is run by the local people. Everybody who's teachers are local people. Uh, we're very limited on how many volunteers we allow in, and we just allow one English teacher in at a time who's an outside volunteer. We have lots of competition for that. Uh, and then in January, in, when the kids are gone, that's their summer, we allow kind of a work party. People come and help Hita with the building and whatever, things like that. So we don't have work projects because outsiders mess it up. 
Uh, they think like they want to get involved with the kids. That causes fights with the kids because who gets the most intention? It undermines their running it. It's their community thing. It's a very interesting balance between interesting people, you know, having people be interested in it so we can get a donor base and have people hear about this incredible project. But on the other side of it, making sure we don't become a, a social justice tourist site because that will completely undermine the whole program, because it has to be theirs. Even when I'm there, I take very much a backseat, consciously. It's very interesting. I consciously pass power to Hita, because if we stand side by side, people will give me the power, because I am white, because I'm foreigner, and because I'm middle class, and because she's from the shanty towns, and she's black, and she's from there, I have to actually consciously pass it to her. So. The kids, the, the students that I'm taking down know they're doing something totally different. We're going to go to a different area. They're going to be doing homestays. It's going to be really cool with people who are lower income people who are mixed, and they'll be doing projects one on one with students in homestays in a totally different area. So, you know, they'll come and visit it, but it's not directly connected. So, another question? Okay, this is this is a whole bunch of questions here. First of all, to let people you you all know, I learned what I talk about in the book. I learned my Portuguese, which is what they speak there. I learned my Portuguese in the streets, in in these shanty towns. Now, the Portuguese that they speak, it has a lot of African words in it, but because I never learned a standard Portuguese, it was kind of like me speaking black English here with a lot of swear words. I didn't really understand I was using as many swear words as I was. I was an academic, though, of course, and I had this connection with the university there, and they asked me, as I was doing my research, after I'd been there for a while, they asked me to give a paper there. So I did. Yeah. So I, I didn't really even understand. I started giving my, you know, my highfalutin theories about, you know, this and that and the other thing. And at first, you hear, it's like people are beginning to titter. They're literally beginning to giggle. And then you just hear them, they're raucous. They're just laughing louder and louder. And finally, the entire room was in this raucous uproar. And I, was, I didn't know what was going on. I was devastated, I have to stay. And finally, the guy who was the head of the department, he came up and he said, well, at least we know Margaret did her field work, as she says she did, don't we? <laughs> So there's a very funny after thing of that. I might say that when I have ever given a paper, now I can speak much more standardized Portuguese, I have to say. But whenever, that has haunted me forever. I don't talk about this in the book. But every time I am asked to speak at a conference, I don't care where it is in Brazil, somebody in the audience will be there. And they'll go, or, or they'll announce me by saying, and some of us here will remember the first time Dr. Wilson gave a talk in Brazil. <laughs> I mean, and it is haunted. A review of the book has just come out in an in a anthropology journal, which I'm delighted. You know, it's a very good review. I'm very flattered. It's written by a Brazilian um, anthropologist who I don't even know, I, who's from Salvador, and she gives it a good review. They never give foreigners good reviews. So I, and also I'm writing about her place. I find this an incredible. I feel very honored, honestly. But I was very worried when the editor of the journal was going to give the book to her to review. And I actually, I know the editor of the journal, and I said, John, you know, you know if you give it to a Brazilian, they'll probably trash it. Just warning you, because that's what they usually do. 
And he said, well, Margaret, he's, he did his field work in Salvador as well, but some years after me. He actually did it in, you know, in not that many years ago, 2004 or something like 2000. And he said, Margaret, when I started doing my field work in Salvador, they said, oh yeah, we had another American anthropologist here, you know, I don't know if you've met her, but, you know, and then he said, and then they told me about this talk you'd given. And this woman who I asked to review the book was at that talk. <sighs> so, this is even in this review. It still haunts me. I have to tell you. What's that? It's in print in another place. I consciously, there's this word favela, which is used a lot in Brazil. It, it means a certain kind of shanty town. Um, now, as we all know, there's this thing of political correctness. It haunts us wherever we go. In Brazil, uh, in the southern part of Brazil, in Rio and Sao Paulo and those areas, they're just, I mean, Brazil is, you know, it's 80% it's impoverished. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It, it vies with Colombia for the greatest violence in the world. It now is vying with China for the greatest inequality. It used to have top position, top dog position, but now China has actually edged it out this year with the greatest inequality. Yeah, but um, they are quite, they're much more politicized in the South. The South has a lot more money than the North, Northeast in Brazil. And they politically call themselves favelas. But in the Northeast, a favela is a community that has just started. So you're just having like tarps on the ground and people have just come from the countryside and they're just invading a, a place to live because they're starving and they're coming and trying to keep themselves from starving, uh, some faint hope of doing that in the city. That is a favela. Uh, the rest of these vast shanty towns in Salvador are called barros populares, which means neighborhoods of the people. So neighborhoods of the people is a bit clumsy. So in English, so I just use shanty town and avoid it. So you see, so I'm not going to get caught one way or the other. So that's why I don't use it. It's a conscious, it's a conscious thing not to use it. So uh, did you have another, there was another part to your question too, wasn't there? What was it? Remember? No. You just have to get another book and read it then. You have to buy the book and read it. <laughs> then you get to date. <laughs> so, other questions? Um, so we we started by a street with one girl, then five girls. It's one of these things, you know. If you commit to do this, if one of you, if you have people are wanting to do something, we, we one thing I do know. First of all, I want to start this by saying, if I can do this. Any of us can do it. just want to tell you that. Do not lose hope or lose the potential of what you can be because all of us can do this. I am not really any different in that than anyone else. Um, but to start it, I, had, I spent all my savings at the beginning to make this because there's nobody's going to give money for a program that has one girl. It's just not going to happen. Then we had five girls, and I got a job teaching university, and all my money that I made went to it because I couldn't... I had a few donors, and they were so important to me. 
But um, we got our first grant after one year, and it was $265. So we also we started with these first five girls, and we, we've learned as we've gone along. And these first five girls were from some of the most impoverished backgrounds um, there are. And in the book, I follow them because they're the ones I'm very intimately involved with um, as time goes on. Um, there are, when I first go and talk to one of them, there's a, they have a, a stories in the shanty towns about, which is actually good because there's a lot of sexual slavery, but they have these stories that there are these big white gringas, especially with blonde hair actually, who come and they steal children and sell them into slavery. It's actually a good sort of boogeyman story to have, to tell you the truth. But when I first came and started talking to some of the kids, they, one of these little girls who later came to buy history, but she screamed and ran away. It was very disturbing. So then Hita went and talked to her, said me. Um, some of the first were some of the most tragic. There was a girl, um, this is one problem I have because I changed their names in the final version of the book to protect their identity and I don't remember what I changed them to. But we'll call her Maria because it's something else in the book that I don't want to use her real name. Um, when, I, when we went there, her father had, he'd had 30, 39 children and then we later found out he'd had even more. He, he um, and she was 11, and he didn't want her to come because he was, he was afraid she might meet somebody and get pregnant by going into the center of the city. These kids, a lot of them have never been out of their shanty town. And we, the Bayestreet is at the center of the city because all the bus, the bus goes like a circle to the center of the city, and the center of the city is like a commercial area, so it's lower middle class, so it's not upper or lower, so they can actually go there. And it means kids from all these shanty towns can come and they don't have to change buses because it's quite dangerous from the change buses. And so most of them have never been to the center of the city before they come to Bayeshri. They've never been outside of their shanty town because they can't get the money to get a bus anywhere. So we pay for their bus fare. Um, and in the end with her, she worked, she was wonderful. She, the tiny bit of money she got at one point, she used to buy a book even though she was illiterate. Um, she's very, very, very bright. But in the end, um, her brother who was in a gang got shot, became paralyzed. Um, her family undermined her ability to come. That's how we learned you have to support the whole family. So she couldn't come, she, she just disappeared. Another one, the mother, some of it is, I don't know if I should even, it's sort of too awful to even talk about in this audience. I feel kind of, I once time started talking about the reality and I think I deadened my audience. So, but, but some of what happened to these first girls was really, really difficult. Um, but one that I think is so wonderful, um, her mother basically forced her into prostitution. She stayed through, um, she stayed until almost eighth grade and then she was very, very pretty 
But what a wonderful thing that has happened is her mother forced her not to come. And since then, though in recent years, she has come back. And she just started coming in quietly and staying. Uh, so she's, she finds it a sanctuary, and now she's connected. She's lived to adulthood, and I'm wonderful to see that. With, with some of these girls, though, they like Daza, that is her real name, actually. She was one of the, the second group of girls. And she likewise comes from a totally impoverished family. Um, Claudia, um, her brother was... Well, her father was assassinated in front of her. Um, they all see someone shot. So we have to have a psychologist to deal with how you deal with violence. But Daza, we have quite a few. We've had lots graduate from high school now. And Daza has just got her degree in journalism. We are having quite, we have quite a few in university. Um, but Daza graduate, another one of them has graduated with a degree in nutrition. She wants to go back and work on helping people not to starve to death in her community. Daza will be a voice that the people of these shanty towns don't have. Somebody from there in journalism being a voice to write about who they are. So that is incredible. So this is a long-term project because you start at eight and they have to then go on. So go and graduate. So we're beginning to see it now. But it's both sides. It's, 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 it's intense to do this kind of thing. Well, that's a, that's a very pertinent question, actually. Because, I mean, even Hita goes through this. Um, she, she's in a limbo. She does have a partner now, but it's been hard for her because she's too educated. She, she's not really, the people she grew up with are not going to be someone that she's going to have a partner with. She's got too much education. But middle class people aren't going to accept her. The, the divide is so strong. But the girls, um, they seem, I mean, one thing that's amazing, we had one girl get pregnant at the very, very beginning. Um, abortion is illegal in Brazil, and she tried to give herself an abortion and almost died. Hita actually saved her life. But since then, no child in Bahia Street, none of the girls have, have got pregnant at all. It's, that's an amazing thing. Without Bahia Street, most of them would be pregnant by the time they're 13, 14 at the oldest. So there's this whole very, very strong part about Bahia Street that you can have boyfriends later, and they do. They do. They follow that because it's, it's sort of like all the teachers are like mothers and fathers. We have male teachers too. It's very important for them to have male role models as well. Giving them a home, they don't... In a, no, it's not. It's a sanctuary that gives them a safe haven that they don't have anywhere else. But they are getting boyfriends. Now, it's interesting. A lot of them are finding people who are themselves, the, the guys they're getting involved with, are people who themselves are people who are in theater, are artistic, or who have, who are consciousness-minded, activist-minded themselves, who are very much activists. It's interesting to see the people that they are getting together with. So the guys are also quite unique people. It's intriguing. So, yeah. well, we'll wait a few more years. I'm quite curious to see what happens about this, because they're still very young. You know, the, the oldest Bay Street girls now, the ones who, when we started, they're now in their early 20s. So. 
It's really exciting to see them. So none of them got married, but um, quite a few of them have boyfriends. Thank you very much. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.